In the very first season of Plants Dig Soil, I talked about soil health tests. Has anything changed since then? In my opinion, no, not really. There are tests that are getting closer to wide-scale adoption, but I just don't see any of them worthwhile yet. In this episode, I'll cover the thinking I had as to how to approach evaluating them, and I'll cover how to assess soil health in my consulting. So welcome to Plants Dig Soil, a podcast about realistic regen ag. I'm your host, Scott Gillespie, and I'm an agronomist from the Western Canadian Prairies, specializing in climate-smart agriculture. I discuss scientifically proven practices that benefit the planet and, just as importantly, farmers' economic sustainability. Be sure to visit my website, www.plantsdigsoil.com, for resources and information about the services that I offer. Chemical analysis of soil emerged in the 20th century to aid farmers in determining the appropriate application of chemical-based fertilizers. I take it for granted today that I can have my sample dropped off at a lab and get results back within a week of what is in the soil. Research was done decades ago to calibrate these results to responses in the field. I can use the test numbers and response curves to come up with what I need to add to the soil. Now, soil health testing has gained prominence as farmers increasingly focus on practices that correct, maintain, or enhance soil health. The objectives of soil health testing align with those of traditional soil testing programs, and that is that you're finding indicators that accurately represent the soil's condition. An ideal indicator possesses attributes such as the ease of measurement, compatibility with other indicators, accessibility, repeatability, cost-effectiveness, and comparability across regions. So if we examine the testing process for phosphorus, this demonstrates how these attributes work in action. So first of all, measurement. Phosphorus testing requires extractants and procedures that work best on the local soil type. Most areas have developed tests that work for them. So samples can be dropped off or cooled and shipped to a lab for testing. Compatibility. The same sample used for phosphorus testing can also provide insights into other nutrients. If we needed to take samples multiple times a year to get all the nutrients, the cost would increase and it'd be less likely anyone would do it. So by being able to take one sample in the fall or spring and getting all of the results at once means it's more likely to be done. Next is accessibility. Various sampling methods, including truck or ATV mounted samplers, make sample collection quick and accessible to most individuals. Hand sampling can be time consuming, but it still means that anyone can do it. If sampling required specialized equipment or procedures, it wouldn't be done. Repeatability. Using GPS systems to mark sampling points enables consistent sampling in subsequent years, which facilitates reliable comparisons. A couple decades ago, this was not possible for most people. Now with smartphones and a scouting app, it's easy to mark the points and come back to the same places every year. Cost effectiveness. Now, soil tests typically represent a small percentage, and I'm estimating it to be 1 to 2% of the cost of the applied nutrients. 
So the potential savings in input costs or in yield gains from proper nutrient application justify the expense. And finally, comparability. Now, individual soil test numbers may not be directly comparable across regions. Broad-scale comparisons can be made by assessing the percentage of farms with low, mid, and high levels of soil test phosphorus. Now, in January of this year on this podcast, I mentioned how the Soil Health Institute is narrowing down their list of potential soil health indicators. They list similar criteria that I came up with. Low cost, easy to do, scalable, and something that most labs will be able to add to their suite of tests. Now, the three tests that they've come up with are organic carbon, carbon mineralization, and aggregate stability. Now, the problem with those tests right now is that the numbers are meaningless to me. I could get them done, but I don't know how to interpret them. When the research is done that can give me guidelines for what they mean and how I can advise farmers to change practices, I'll use them. But in the meantime, I'll stick to what I know. So what do I do? I use traditional soil tests, farmer knowledge, and my own observations. Soil tests that are chemically based have the advantage of legacy. I can compare results now to tests that were taken years ago or even decades ago. And sure, they're not perfect, but they give me something. I can see overall trends of nutrients, organic matter, salts, or pH that are going up or down. But soil tests alone don't give me the whole story. Farmers know the good areas and the poor areas. If they don't know because it's a new field, I can go back on satellite imagery. Even something as simple as the free resource Google Earth can tell me a lot. Historical imagery may show old divisions of fields that explain why certain areas are performing better or worse than others. When it comes to in-field measurements, I let the soils and the plants do the talking. Dr. Andrew McGuire made a flowchart four years ago that has proven to be very valuable to me in formalizing my assessment of a field. I'll link to the blog post with the flowchart in the description. But here's the six questions you ask yourself. At any point that you answer no, you stop and you address that. Or you might go through it all, but you prioritize the first questions first and then you move on. So question number one is, does your soil blow or flow away? This addresses wind or water erosion concerns and is crucial for retaining soil, particularly for crops like potatoes, carrots, and sugar beets. If you're losing soil, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. You fix this first, period. Does your soil allow water to soak in rapidly? There are numbers you can follow, but the important thing is to watch what happens when it's raining or when you're irrigating the field. If it can't take in the water, address this. Crop rotation, cover crops, or changing up your tillage regime may be things to consider. I didn't say no-till. You may need a small amount of tillage to address surface compaction. Question number three is, does your soil drain well? So once soil erosion and water movement are under control, you focus on the shifts to drainage. If a hard pan exists deeper than the reach of tillage equipment, 
plants with robust root systems, such as tillage radish, can help to break up the hardpan. The decomposition of tillage radish creates channels through the soil, enhancing drainage. If you can make forages economical, try three years of alfalfa, because there is just nothing like a perennial. Question number four. Does your soil crust? Surface crusting can indicate a lack of organic matter, excessive tillage, or insufficient surface cover. Minimizing tillage and increasing organic matter content becomes crucial in these cases. Strategies like compost or manure application, cover cropping throughout the rotation, or dedicating a year to growing a green manure prior to planting can help to protect and enhance the soil. Question number five, does your crop recover most of the nutrients you apply? And this question focuses on nutrient flow. It could refer to synthetic inputs, it could be composts or manures, or nutrients assimilated or mined by cover crops. A diverse mix of cover crops may prove beneficial in nutrient uptake and release dynamics. For example, cereal rye efficiently takes up leftover nutrients, but it may not release them quickly enough for the subsequent crop. On the other hand, tillage radish rapidly absorbs nutrients, but they can leach them away if it dies and decomposes too soon. Mixing these with a legume might work for you. However, you need to be mindful of water usage. You could have all the nutrients you need, but a dry soil impedes cash crop growth. And the final question, if all those other things that we've talked about are solved or taken care of, or you're working on them, are there still areas where the plants die or grow poorly? This question relates to disease and insect pests and also chemical issues such as salts. A cover crop like mustard growing before potatoes can act as a biofumigant, releasing chemicals that are toxic to disease organisms while benefiting the potato crop in the subsequent year. Deep-rooted crops like alfalfa growing near saline areas can help to pump the water from deep down. It isn't a quick fix, but over the course of 5 to 10 years, it can make a big difference. So there you have it. That's how I approach soil health assessments. I'm not saying I'll never use the new soil health tests. I'm saying I'm going to use the tried and true methods and integrate these new tests as they provide value. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week.